Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guests are Lynn Blackman, Susanna Johnson-Shannon, and Martha Severins. We'll be talking about central to their lives, Southern women artists in the Johnson Collection, an exhibition featuring artists from the colonial period to the present. I'll have that conversation, but first, your NPR news break.
This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today are Lynn Blackman, who's Director of Communications for the Johnson Collection up in Spartanburg, and Martha Severins, who's contributor to a publication of the Johnson Collection entitled Central to Their Lives, Southern Women Artists in the Johnson Collection. And on the telephone from Denver, Colorado, is Susanna Johnson-Shannon, who is a curatorial advisor to the Johnson Collection and author of the introduction to this publication. So welcome to the journal, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Susanna, if you would, would you give us some background about the Johnson Collection, how it came about with your mom and dad, but particularly with your mom, and what the goal is? Sure. I'd be happy to. So my father was a history major at Walford College, and my mother was an English major at Converse College, both in Spartanburg. And while their careers took different tracks, they both always had a deep love of history and a sense of place, whether it be Spartanburg, South Carolina, where my dad was raised, or Morganton, North Carolina, where my mom was raised. My entire childhood, they loved telling stories about where they were from and different family members and then visiting different places throughout North and South Carolina. And I think art evolved as a natural way for them to really share this representation of where they were from. My whole childhood, they were interested in art, but it was really when I was in high school and college in the early 2000s when they started purchasing art in a more significant way. Um, typically representations from areas where they had spent time, whether it be Blowing Rock or the coast of South Carolina. And simultaneously, I was pursuing an art history degree at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. And I came home from school and saw the number of paintings they had started to acquire and wall space was no longer available and things were in storage rooms and we started having long conversations about what was the best way to use this art and to really share it. And I think that started the thought in their heads of forming the Johnson Collection and really focusing on the scholarship part of it and the shared history of both of them being from North and South Carolina and then the broader Southeast and that this was really an area in American art that had not had a lot of attention in recent history. And um, my mom in particular has just always loved art, loved supporting emerging artists. And of course, she's always been a champion for women, which is leads us to central to their lives. Lynn, your role with the, with the foundation and the collection? Well, I'm feel like I've got the best job in the world, Walter, because I've had the privilege of being a part of something that is truly given as a gift. The Johnson Collection is a beautiful snowflake, to use some millennial terminology. It's an unusual organization that at its heart seeks to be an inspiration um, by making art widely available to every type of person, um, not just people who would typically describe themselves as 
museum goers, and also to support scholarship by incredible um, veterans in the field like Martha, whose list of publications is long, as well as the opportunity to support um, new and emerging scholars who who have a a tough time getting their work and getting work um, published. Martha Severance is a longtime guest on our show, even before she started collaborating with the Johnson Collection. And Martha, you wrote, I would say, the defining essay in this book, which explains what it's all about, especially the difficulties of women in the art world. I'm afraid historically people go, oh, women go back to Henrietta Johnson. They were doing those little pastels and those nice miniatures, and then they were all taught to to draw along with sew. Um, so weren't they artists back then? Well, not quite. The, the beauty of Henrietta Johnston is that she was a professional, meaning that she took money for what she did, and she supported her family. So that's sort of a, a distinction. Not that all of the women in Central to the Lives um, depended or defined themselves in terms of their income, though I think almost all, maybe there's one exception, uh, did manage to sell their work. And that's that exception, of course, is an interesting story. But let me talk a little bit about my essay and what my assignment was. As we sat around the table planning, uh, and who we might invite to be the other essayists and the topics we were covering in those essays. Topics kept cropping up that weren't going to be covered. And so Martha's assignment was to just collect them all. And I forget what term we use, but it was sort of like, you know, I got to package the whole thing. And I think I did a draft and had not... Uh, included photography. And so we decided that I should include photography because there are some very strong uh, women photographers who came to the South, and, and that made I mean, an interesting... Almond all, all immediately comes yes, from... Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so it was a way to include Zelda Fitzgerald, for instance, Helen Dupre Mosley. I wanted to include George O'Keefe, who's not in the collection. So my essay does include a couple of things, illustrations we procured from the Gibbs Museum uh, and the Greenville Museum. I wanted to include Annie Albers, uh, who uh, was at Black Mountain College with her husband and a very important force up there. So it was a kind of catch-all um, essay. I would have wanted more illustrations. I had a longer list, but of course, you know, reality set in, and so we couldn't um, manage them all. Okay, let's back up to the to the book. Did it start out just as a catalog, or is it really meant to be an art history book? And I'm going to throw that one to you, Martha. I would. Uh, you saw me shaking my head. It's absolutely uh, got long shelf life. It is a major publication on women artists of the South, and the fact that it has these six very cogent essays. I'm including myself in that count, so maybe five other wonderful essays, as well as comprehensive catalog entries, and then this incredible directory 
that the Johnson Collection has put together with the 2,000-some names of women artists who have um, worked in the South, born in the South, and this is the magnus opus of one of the staff members at the Johnson Collection, Holly Waters, who should get a great... um, I don't know, salute uh, in terms of the work that she did. And what's exciting here is that we all see her directory as foundational. In other words, it's the beginning of a resource on which we can build. So to go back to my initial comment, this book has long shelf life. And the intention, and Lynn, you can help me out here, is that this information is going to go online so it can be updated and corrected. Uh, which is just super. But here it is in print. And we present it as an incomplete starting point. Um, It is compiled through any number of resources, exhibition records, our own scholarship, the scholarship of art historians who work with us. And it is meant to be a dynamic living Organism. It is posted on our website at thejohnsoncollection.org, and we invite those people who avail themselves of it to please let us know if we have something incorrect or if they can provide us with additional information so that we can be a resource. That's, that's part of the goal. The scholarship that the Johnson Collection seeks to support is not just for today, but also for the future. If we can leave some sort of thread for a future scholar or student to pick up and just carry that ball a little further down the field, uh, that will be very rewarding for us. Well, why this book on Southern women artists now? I think it was inevitable that there, the collection would put forth a book focused on women artists My mom is the CEO of the Johnson Collection, and it has been her lifelong calling to champion women and support women and teach us all about women, and it was really just the natural progression for a publication for the collection, and um, with it being published this year, it is very timely with the different movements going on in our country and really in the world, um, whether it be the Women's March, the Me Too movement, this is really women's time. Lynn mentions in her editorial note the Fearless Girl statue, you know, another piece of artwork, and there's no better time for women to be at the forefront, and um, in fact, it's high time, and I think this is just a really unique opportunity and a wonderful time for this book to be published. And in in many ways, with this, even though there are lots and lots of illustrations, uh, Martha said there could be more, but it's, it's evident from the ones that are, that are on tour for the exhibit is that the Johnson Collection has been assembling women artists over time. This is not just a one-shot deal. 30% of the artists in the collection are women. I think there were also logistical concerns, and Lynn and Susanna, you can correct me, uh, that we wanted to get to a critical mass and a quality. Uh, and the initial work that we did four summers ago for Dave Henderson was to go state by state and to identify all the women artists we could find. And then uh, he 
and and we sort of assessed, we ranked them, if you will, and he went after uh, artists that he felt uh, needed to be in the collection. So it wasn't just, oh, we have 30% of the collection, we need to do something with it. It was a very well thought out project. And it's also, in terms of the chronology of other publications from the Johnson Collection, the first was Romantic Spirits, which is the 19th century component, the more traditional uh, portraits, narrative, history paintings. Uh, the second was uh, Scenic Impressions, which are the, what I call, and I this is not demeaning when I say this, pretty pictures, uh, lovely landscapes, which sort of went up to the 1940s, but now we've sort of moved on, progressed in time, as it were. And this does come into the 21st century. The latest work, I would say, is the Kohlmeyer 64. It's in the 60s, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. And and the directory may have uh, also some people who Living prospered artists. into the in the 21st century. Well, I was century. having looked through the directory. That's that's where my question came. People are going to look South Carolinians when they think of 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 artists. We've already talked about Henrietta Johnson, but you get into the 20th century and people begin to think about the Charleston Renaissance. Whether we're talking about Elizabeth and Neil Verner, whether we're t- talking about Anna Hayward Taylor, and of course Alice Smith. Of course, Alice Smith. <laughs> yes, but for somebody who has looked at their works in museums, the ones you have in the book are not what I would consider typical of them. Was that deliberate? I think it was an opportunity to show that uh, in in both Verner and Smith's case that that they had a broader repertoire. Uh, the rice plantation series at the Gibbs has kind of packaged Alice Smith a little too tightly. And I have boldly said that that's not her best work, uh, that she is much more at ease and much more natural uh, when she's right there in the landscape uh, emotionally. And I think this wonderful it, admittedly, it's a dark and moody, unusual in that respect, but I think that is, is quite wonderful. In your opening remarks, Martha, you said that there was one woman who didn't need to sell her works, and I'm sure that's Anna Hyde Huntington. Not a good guess, Walter. Oh. Not, 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 a, not at all. Uh, Anna Hyatt Huntington did not marry Archer M. Huntington until she was 47. Until then, she worked very hard, and she earned significant income, and at one point it was $50,000, which at that time was more money than any other woman working in any other profession. We're talking about pre-World War II, so that's an incredible sum for yes. anybody to be exactly. earning. Exactly. Do you want to know who the artist was that I was referring to? Yes. And, and it wasn't quite um, that she didn't need to make the money. It was that she did not sell her work. And, and that's an important distinction because it's a very... Um, Oh, my gosh, this is so antiquated. This is Kate Freeman Clark, okay, who was a very accomplished student of William Merritt Chase. She did impressionistic landscapes. She was from the Deep South, 
and well-chaperoned by her mother, who was willing for uh, her daughter to study uh, with Chase uh, up in New York and to attend his summer sessions on Long Island. But her mother, even though she let her daughter exhibit paintings, which were signed Freeman Clark, no Kate, she was allowed to uh, exhibit her paintings, but was, her mother would not allow her to sell any of her paintings because it was unladylike. Uh, wow. Well, <laughs> you, you, there are two things that you, you, you speak to the Times is that she dropped the Kate and she was not the only woman, whether in literature or, or art, that had a name that could pass for a man's. And uh, the idea of not being able to, she shouldn't, a lady should not be earning right. a living. Selling. And, and, and get it, this was Freeman, was the name she used, free man. And yet she was not. A free woman. Walter, another wonderful anecdote about uh, these Southern women and and the way they were compensated or not for their work um, is Enid Yandela, very accomplished sculptor who who uh, worked with the White Rabbits in Chicago. She had a tremendous amount of success and um, early in her career, right in the late. 19, late 1800s, late 19th century, um, when she had begun to um, receive recognition and remuneration for her excellent work. Uh, there's a document that, that notes a letter from an uncle who said that she had absolutely disgraced the Yandel name as she had accepted a dollar for her work. Well, that sadly was an attitude that certainly in South Carolina lasted well into the 30s. For example, the, a woman who graduated number one in her law class in the 1920s, her husband did not allow her to work because that would be, again, he had to support her. So she spent her life doing pro bono work, uh, number one in her class. And we're saying it's a Southern attitude, might have been more prevalent here than elsewhere, but it still was sadly fairly typical. Now, on the other side, what amazed me is the number of young Southern women who not only go north to study, but who end up in Paris or on the con- elsewhere on the continent. It is remarkable. And, and part of the reason why Southern women went north or went to Paris in particular was that there was very little opportunity for them in the region. And uh, I guess one person that could be considered an, an exception is Corey McCallum. And I want to go back to a reference. She didn't die until 2009. So she, we did get her into the 21st century, and she was pretty active until the end. Uh, but she went to University of South Carolina, where she studied with uh, some very strong women artists, Catherine Rembert and Catherine Hayward. Uh, so there is a tradition uh, there. Uh, of course, she went on to the Boston Museum School following her husband uh, and then eventually returned to Charleston. And she married William Halsey, right? Correct. Correct. Uh, and and that brings up another potential topic is the idea of artistic couples and the balancing act that, that they did. Halsey and McCallum are a good example of kind of 
if I may say, duking it out. And since I knew both of them and witnessed them doing this, it, it's a kind of interesting uh, dynamic. And I think very clearly he makes a point of going in one direction with his collages and his sculptures, which are very tactile and very dark in many ways, and she goes in another direction, and that is more decorative, more colorful, uh, more brilliant uh, work, as if they are trying to define themselves as separate artists. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm speaking with Lynn Blackman, Susanna Johnson-Shannon, and Martha Severins about a new publication from the Johnson Foundation, Central to Their Lives, Southern Women Artists in the Johnson Collection. Let's talk about the opportunities for women to seriously study art and Sophie Newcomb College in New Orleans, uh, which eventually became part of Tulane, was the first. And that started in the early 20th century. And I think what's remarkable is, first of all, a woman's college and uh, the design, if you will, the mission was to provide women with a skill set that they could earn a living. So, yes, they were kind of the, on the slightly leaning to the practical arts of um, bookbinding and jewelry. And uh, the, the thing I think that I associate most with Newcomb is Newcomb pottery, that wonderful. Um, and, of course, there is a pictorial element uh, to the pottery, uh, which captures the flora and fauna uh, of the region. And uh, if I may make a segue, the mover and shaker behind Newcomb College was Ellsworth Woodward, who, of course, also was very important in the Southern States Art League. And the agenda for the Southern, Southern States Art League was to promote Southern artists and of the 1,200 members of the league, two-thirds were women, and you had people like Elizabeth O'Neill Verner in leadership roles, and it was really them who held the league together. And we have a wonderful essay by Karen Claxman addressing specifically um, that the league and the role of women. Newcomb Pottery is, you know, world-famous. Just look at the Antique, Antiques Roadshow. Right. <laughs> Interestingly... People don't think of the University of South Carolina as a hotbed for art instruction, but yet before World War II, it was very, very strong. And Martha, I know you, you've already mentioned uh, Catherine Hayward, uh, but there's also Catherine Rembert, uh, and the women and the men that they that, that they trained. And do you know this uh, sort of obscure fact that I think one reason why the university administration was supporting the development of the art department is that they wanted to increase the enrollment of the university and to attract women to the university. And so they thought they could do it through the vehicle of an art department. Oh, I'm not surprised in uh. the least. <laughs> um, so... Just because you do include art teachers as artists, and, and Hayward and, and Rembert are both very famous, Lynn. And there are several um, of, the, of the women artists featured here and, of course, in the directory who um, not only were formerly 
uh, trained in art at colleges, uh, I think especially of Converse College in Spartanburg, mm-hmm. which trained um, Blundell Malone and Margaret Law. Margaret Law would then go on in her hometown of Spartanburg to be the superintendent of art for the district schools. There's Mary Leith Thomas, uh, who was instrumental in the Atlanta area and and Athens, Georgia area um, school districts. So um, several of them did go on, um, pursue undergraduate and then graduate degrees at Southern institutions, female colleges and uh, co-ed institutions, and then go on to be instrumental and influential teachers. The the cover artist, Teresa Pollock, is, is one such example. I mean, she was a associated with VCU uh, for decades. And, of course, excuse me, Susanna. I was going to say, building on what Martha said about the Southern States Art League, how important these different clubs and organizations were for women to really find a voice. Uh, Josephine Cooper and Margaret Law founded the Spartanburg Arts and Crafts Club, which ultimately became the Spartanburg Art Museum, which I myself benefited from as a child and which really sparked an interest in art that led me to pursue studying art history in later years. And I just feel that those organizations were really important for women in those times. And following my time at WNL, I actually worked for the Cooper Union in New York City and two of the artists featured in Central to Their Lives, Augusta Savage and Helen Turner, were both alums of the Cooper Union. So it's just really remarkable that how these women all had different career paths, whether they teach art, make art, advocate for art, and how it really has all come full circle in the lives of so many Southern women. Martha, one teacher, and I would say that's why she's included, would be Georgia O'Keefe who taught briefly at Columbia College. But for her, it was she had an artistic epiphany in Columbia that really changed the course of her life. Exactly. And, and I think that's a powerful kind of reversal of things. Um, I, I always love to quote a statement she wrote to Anita Pollitzer, and, and she talked, quote, unquote, hibernating in, in South Carolina is something everybody should do. And, and the point was that she could dig into her work, that there weren't any distractions, there weren't any colleagues. So she turned inward and created this incredible body of work, which really laid a foundation. And so in defining who Southern women are, the net was cast fairly broadly. Uh, we did the same thing for the encyclopedia. Yes, and ac- and actually, remember? You know, I know, but actually there was a Georgia O'Keeffe quote that we was used or we discussed and it it's not where I was born but it's what I've done where I was that or basically you know what did I do there that was right. important right not where I just happened to be dropped into the world right. and so that brought George O'Keefe is that was your argument for putting her mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. encyclopedia mm-hmm. Yeah, so. this is something that you know I ask authors all the time for their favorite passage. But Susanna, I'm going to start with you and ask you, of all of the women in the book, who is your favorite and why? 
as I mentioned earlier, my parents were really inspired with collecting the art because of the sense of place and where they were from that the art gave them. And so for me, it would have to be Margaret Law. I love her paintings of scenery in and around Spartanburg and the peaches and the work that took place there and particularly living in Denver now I have several pieces by different Southern artists in my home, and it just gives such a sense of home and a sense of where you're from. And Margaret Law is so representative of Spartanburg County, where I was fortunate enough to grow up. Martha, could you describe the, the painting that she was talking about? Certainly. It's called Peach Shed, Inman, South Carolina, which, of course, is in the upstate, not far from Spartanburg. Uh, it's an undated uh, canvas of good size, and what we see is a peach shed, very colorful foreground, uh, kind of a sandy uh, yellow, and we see a worker carrying a big bushel barrel of peaches into this composition that is defined by um, several Dark. They're not really arches because they're not round, but several very geometric uh, shapes. Very colorful, which I think is very typical of her work. Uh, I think this is one of the, the best examples uh, that she's ever did. It's actually one of two paintings that you have in the book with a peach market as the scene. And one of the images that really grabbed me as I went through I'm not saying it's my favorite, but since we've already got one peach market, was Winona Day Bell's peach packing, which was set in Spartan, it says Spartanburg County, 1938. I think another thing that's interesting about both of those paintings is that it really does show how Southern artists were connected to broader American movements in art at that time. You know, both kind of connected to that American scene, regionalist uh, movement in in both subject matter and feel. Um, certainly, laws is more impressionistic, but the um, I, I think Martha, you you um, confirm or deny, but I mean Bell's work it, it harks of Benton and Curry in that sense. And, and I think one could say that uh, in a microcosm, these artists reflect national trends. Perhaps maybe there's a little bit of a time lapse. Uh, in other words, the welcoming of a kind of abstract expressionistic uh, style is well past the heyday of the big guys, and I'm talking Jackson Pollock and um, that group. But nevertheless, the... Uh, responses of people like Ida Kohlmeier out of New Orleans or Dusty Banger or Edith London. Uh, they're all kind of refreshing and I would say very personal interpretations of abstract expressionism uh, rather than um, imitative. I think the story of Belle in itself is it's fascinating. She's from Trenton, South Carolina. She went to Bernal College, fine, but then she studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, then she studied in Paris, then she studied in Italy over the course of, of almost two decades. Now, that's just a—I find it an incredible tra trajectory for a young Southern woman in the, the years right around World War I. These biographies that you have, the many biographies with the artists, to me, they're as fascinating as the paintings 
themselves. Anne Goldthwaite's another great example of that trajectory, Walter, I think. Um, you know, she's deep in Alabama growing up and uh, has this abiding interest in art and obvious talent. And it's only after she, uh, quote unquote, fails to uh, find a mate after making her debut that her family encourages her to move on. <laughs> her her opportunity having been missed, evidently, in Alabama at that time. And she goes to New York. Uh, she then goes to Paris. She lives at the American Girls Club, which talk about bold in that day. She's in Gertrude Stein's circle. Um, and then she comes back to New York and teaches at the Art Students League for several decades. Um, one of the one of the earlier um, long-term faculty members there and, and was a strong advocate for women's rights, women's suffrage. And wasn't she one of the small number of women who were commissioned during the New Deal days to do murals for public buildings. In the South. South. Uh, And I think that's an interesting, I was going to bring that up, uh, is that because of the administration in Washington, Edward Rowan in particular, it was a very, uh, first of all, male-oriented viewpoint and then a very kind of northern. He liked, Rowan liked to work with his network of accepted artists. But because Goldthwaite had a reputation that was a New York reputation uh, through her teaching at the Art Students League, I think she was the first woman to do so, she was acceptable to him. So uh, (laughs) she did two of the, what we call WPA uh, murals. And I think that's, that's worth thinking about, too, is that with both uh, Winona Bell and Goldthwaite, while they were working in the North, their imagery was drawn from their roots, from the South. Uh, In in the case of the painting that's represented in the exhibition uh, by Goldthwaite, it's a portrait. So it doesn't really suggest Southern, except that uh, the subject of the portrait, uh, Francis Green Nix, becomes the director of the Montgomery Museum of Art. So so there is a, through the subject matter of the portrait, there is a Southern connection. Martha, you haven't, we haven't asked you for your favorite yet. I'm not going to answer. I'm, I'm sorry, that is not an answer. <laughs> You'll have to take it. Curators do not choose their favorites. I never have. What about in terms of biography, life story, somebody forgotten that you think really should be out there? All right. Just off the top of my head, I'm going to choose Minnie Evans. Okay. And tell us us about Minnie Evans. Minnie Evans. Uh, She painted these wonderful, mystical, often very symmetrical images, very colorful, small on paper. She was an untrained artist, unschooled artist, uh, very much influenced by Mother Nature. She was a gatekeeper at a park. She was African-American and uh, painted these very upbeat, colorful, uh, they're often mask-like images in the faces. Uh, People have tried to pinpoint her influences, but it just doesn't work. It's a total strikeout. She's one of several very strong African-American women in in the collection. Another artist 
whose life story I like is uh, Selma Burke, and she sort of falls in with other artists whose parents did not approve of, of her pursuit of art, and so she was forced, if you will, to um, take a nursing degree rather than uh, pursue um, her, her passion for art. Uh, in the Johnson Collection, there's a wonderful sculpture uh, by her uh, of a woman, and I think it's worth mentioning that in the exhibition, there's several very fine examples of three-dimensional work. Uh, Selma Burke was masterful in terms of her handling of wood. Her selection of wood uh, often kind of determines the subject matter. Perhaps her biggest claim to fame is the fact that she created the profile of Franklin Delano Roosevelt that is on the dime. And why why was Selma Burke selected? Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had a hand in that selection. So, I, so just to say that I think it's worth mentioning that there are these appropriately uh, talented African-American women included in the exhibition. Uh, all right. Lynn, can you answer the question? Well, it is a Sophie's Choice sort of situation, and, and it's difficult. I'm I'm an avid reader, and so I'm always drawn to the story and the biography. I think I might choose Alma Thomas, um, another African-American artist who's represented in the collection, in this exhibition, excuse me, by a representative um, work, Still Life with Mandolin, but who's uh, perhaps a more signature work, Blue Ground Stripe, is uh, illustrated in one of the companion introductory essays. Um, but Alma Thomas uh, was born in Columbus, Georgia, near Columbus, Georgia. Um, her parents were middle class, and they had four daughters, Alma being the oldest. And her parents realized that in the early 20th century, Alma's and her sister's opportunities for education would be limited. So they relocated to Washington, D.C. Alma became the first graduate of Howard University's art department. She then went on to have a long career as a teacher in the district's school system, all the while pursuing her art, and was quite pivotal to uh, African-American art in that city as a principal in the Barnett Aiden Gallery. She would, after retirement, broaden her artistic horizons, paint more diligently, take advanced classes, and work in the color field painting for which she became so known. She, um, at the age of 80 in 1972, she became the first African-American woman to be accorded a solo exhibition at a major American museum, the Whitney Museum. And her story, I, w- I would say she was one of the better-known African-American yes. artists in, in this exhibition, but, and yet it doesn't um, ever reach the level that perhaps her male counterparts would have been accorded at that time. Um, thankfully, when the Obamas were at the White House, Michelle Obama selected one of Alma Thomas's beautiful works to hang, I believe, in a dining room. And that reawakened interest in her career. And there's been some more recent scholarship about her because of that. When we talk about fame, I come back to Anaheide Huntington, at least for our listeners, maybe in South Carolina, better known because of her work 
Green Gardens. There are two of her works here in Columbia. It's an interesting story as well. I think you're kind of opening up an opportunity to talk about uh, what women did besides making art. So we have Anna Huntington with the resources of her husband, Archer, uh, formulating Brookring Gardens. We have the women of the Charleston Renaissance of feeding and fueling the preservation movement of Charleston. Werner in particular was very active in that respect. But uh, Smith as well, Anna Hayward Taylor, with through their books and through their imagery, uh, providing all this fodder for tourists who were coming to Charleston, which in turn uh, led to the preservation movement. We have women who were very strong in terms of establishing museums. For instance, Marie Hull in um, Jackson, Mississippi. You have, and I've forgotten her first name, but Telfair. Uh, the woman who left her property in Savannah to become the Telfair Museum of Art. Mary Telfair, maybe? I'm sorry about that. I have to that. go back to that thing. That's a slight. Mary Telfair. Mary Telfair. So so women were were operative beyond just the, you know, idea of being in their studios uh, and, and making art. You've already talked about teaching. Uh, and, of course, teachers leave this wonderful legacy. So teachers teach students who become proficient in their careers who might teach. Since you've opened that up, Charleston and the Charleston Renaissance, the arts in all respects are flowering and women are full participants in what's going on, whether you're talking about the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals, whether you're talking about the Poetry Society. Charleston, between World War I and World War II, was a pretty incredible place. You've got Laura Bragg as director of the, Correct. Of the Gibbs. No, Charleston Museum. I'm sorry, the Charleston Museum. Excuse Helen me. McCormick was the director of the Gibbs for a while. Uh, and <laughs> I actually knew Helen McCormick. Yes. And you had people like the late Anna Rutledge, who studied art, went to the American Philosophical Society. In fact, she they published one of her works on artists and the life mm-hmm. of Charleston. So, I mean, you, you've got these women participating in a, in a very wide sphere of, of activities. And that was being replicated in southern cities, uh, large and small across the South, especially in the early 20th century, I think Deborah Pollock's essay about the strength of women's clubs, Susanna noted that earlier, the way that um, both artists like Margaret Lahr, Josephine Cooper in Spartanburg's case, or Marie Hull in Jackson, and, and then people who weren't gifted with artistic skills, but had the love and, and passion or perhaps the organizational expertise to to be advocates. Uh, you think about Mary Dwelly in the uh, Mitt Museum in Charlotte. That, that cohesiveness, it, it, uh, it, it then becomes fitting for us from the collections perspective that we are uh, not intentionally so, but happily so, of all female staff, um, you know, led by a female CEO, and that success is, is very um, gratifying. 
And I think it's worth mentioning another essay in the book um, by Evie Toronto about suffrage and women artists in the South. This is a whole new arena for me, um, and there's some wonderful photographic images uh, in her essay. So, so I think if, if the, the whole package of the exhibition, the directory, the work itself, and then you, you add these six essays, it's a very rich package, if I may say so. It absolutely is. And across the South, women's clubs frequently began as literary societies or reading clubs in many places, including South Carolina, quickly evolved into civic action, not just suffrage, but hospitals, public health, those kinds of issues. And the fact that the nexus for all of this is really the art world, mm-hmm. the, the fine arts. Susanna, I brought out Anna Hot Huntington, and in your introductory essay, Brook Green Gardens had a pretty powerful experience on you as a young child. Yes. Um, my brother and I spent countless summers on Polly's Island, and we spent many days at Brook Green and playing there, exploring, and Anna Hyatt Huntington really stands as a giant in my childhood. My mom would always tell me about her and the work she created and really the gift that she gave to South Carolina with Brooke Green. And um, as a South Carolinian, it's just a treasure and something that we're so lucky to have. And I'm so happy that she is a big part of this book. Well, Alfred's giving me a sign, which is we need to to sort of wind up, but I always like to have our guests' last word, if you will. And Susanna, I'm going to start with you. And sort of the general topic is, what do you hope this publication will do with regard to this this idea of women in the art world? The collection um, is privileged to be able to put forth this book and with the exhibit with a reach of hundreds of thousands of people. I think it's a really unique opportunity to give these Southern women artists their due and their time to shine and hopefully promote additional scholarship about each of these women or further scholarship and interest in other women artists that we were not able to include in this book. So I think it's a wonderful starting off point for Southern women artists working during this time period. All right. Lynn? I agree with Susanna, and I I think I'd like to just underscore the point that one of the collection's overarching goals is to educate people about Southern art. Great Southern art is simply great American art. Um, And so what we seek to do is highlight the distinction so that with time— that distinction, or rather that marginalization, can be erased. And so we do the same here with our women artists. We want to showcase their their lives, their works, their talents, with the hope that the, the legacies they leave in the material objects and in their teaching um, can be judged on its own merit, regardless of gender. Uh, we approach the works by African-American artists in the collection in the same way. We seek to 
highlight and elevate, hopefully to get to a situation where they are no longer referred to as a great African-American artist, but simply as a great artist. And their works are included because their works are good, not just because they happen to be produced by a woman or by a woman of color. Yes. Okay. And Martha? I would like to um, follow up on these two wonderful statements by Susanna and Lynn um, by quoting the quote that I end my essay with um, and kind of twist it a little bit. The quote is from Cecilia Bowe uh, early in the 20th century, and she said, I predict an hour when women in art will be as strange-sounding a topic as the title men in art. So we could substitute Southern art for that, that, that as Lynn said, this is not just Southern art. This is American art. And I would like to remind our listeners that something, about something Lynn said earlier, and that is, in within this book is a catalog of women artists across the South, and it's on the website at the Johnson Collection, it is. and it is an ongoing project. So, if you live in Biloxi, Mississippi, and there happen to be some women artists from the 1890s that people haven't heard of, and that's very possible, just get in touch. Please do. Okay. I'd like to thank Susanna Johnson-Shannon for being with us from Denver for this program. Lynn Blackman, who is Director of Communications for the Johnson Collection, and as I said earlier, longtime friend and guest on the journal, Martha Severance. Thank you all for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. The Johnson Collection has done a great service in collecting and promoting artists of the American South. And this particular volume, Southern Women Artists, is a sadly neglected part of art history. In addition to the traveling exhibition, there is an online list at the Johnson Collection of women artists in the South. It's interactive. If you discover an artist that's not recognized, you can contact the folks and have her put on the list. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal.
Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.